Looking to optimize your performance, grow your mind, and change your system? Well, you've come to the right place. This is the Bold Base Performance Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to the show. Our guest today is Coach Al Collar. Alec is the Hurdles and DB's coach at Edwardsville High School in Illinois. Yes, he is the son of Tony Holler, our first TFC guest on the podcast. We talk about what it is like having a coach as your dad and how this bond influenced Alec's athletic career and coaching career. We chat about CNS-driven training, RPR, and how speed has universal effects in training. Alec is a huge proponent of empowering kids to build their own house to be successful in sports and in life. Thanks for tuning in to the show. In the show notes, you'll find access to his Twitter account and his Hurdle DVDs. We also posted the link to our lower body mobility course. Whether you are a parent, coach, athlete, or trainer, you'll find immense benefit in this program to take care of your hips, knees, and feet. 25% of all proceeds will go to the Global Giving Coronavirus Relief Fund as well. Let's continue to grow the mind and change the system. I have a, a question, and maybe we can just kind of start there, too. So last time we talked, when the recording didn't work, uh, we talked a lot about the central nervous system. Yes. And I'm, I'm really curious, since we were talking about your kids who are three and two years old, um, what do you notice in them related to, like, recovery or central nervous system or things like that? And the reason I ask is because I have a lot of uh, nephews and, and nieces, and when I see them move, like they're able to do like a full squat or like their mobility is just awesome. Right. So you're kind of yeah. able to look at young kids and see like, this is how we're supposed to move and things like that. Um, what, what do you notice from like a CNS recovery standpoint or anything like that, that you've learned from like watching your kids? Yeah. I mean, that's probably the main thing when I look at kids and movements, it's movement without the cheats that our bodies develop and things like that. And it's, it's just a beauty to watch, you know, a body move the way it is supposed to move and not create all those cheats and things like that. So I'm always trying to push the limits of, you know, what my kids can do. And we've recently been like working on jumping on one leg or uh, speed drills. We just learned how to do prime times and mini prime times and high knees and things like that. And it's like it is so awesome to to watch their movement and their um how the how quickly their muscles can learn to fire you know like the more you work on it at a young age you're just really developing a great central nervous system i think setting them up for you know great for any sport later on in life and i think just overall health 100 exactly when they get later in life, they don't have to spend, like sometimes high schoolers, they don't even know like how to run backwards or yeah. like pick up a drill like prime times right away. Then you spend a couple of weeks trying to go over that. Whereas <laughs> for you, if you're teaching them that two and three, yeah. then in, in, in <laughs> elementary school and middle school and high school, they can get to higher level things, which is more beneficial to them, more beneficial to you, their coaches, everyone involved. So that, that's good that you're giving them uh, early. They don't really have a choice though. They can't really tell you. Or do they tell you no a lot? Oh, yeah. They they are a total pain in the butt. Like, they, they want to uh, or they don't want to do things that 
I want them to do just to kind of like mess with me. You know, they can tell, I think when I'm trying to coach them. So I have to like kind of trick them into wanting to do it themselves with, and like act like I'm not trying too hard, you know? So it's definitely a master's class in coaching psychology with your own little kids being that little. And, you know, something else I thought about with, um, central nervous system with little kids is learning, uh, body awareness. I'm huge on body awareness, being a hurdle coach and football coach and things like that. Uh, ton of kids I work with at the high school level just don't have body awareness. They don't know what is going on with their right leg because they don't feel it. And so I'll tell them, okay, I want you to pick this foot up and I want you to do this leg swings. And you can tell at first they're kind of trying to make the neural connection to that leg that I'm talking about. And then the more we do it, that connection, connecting time gets quicker and quicker. And I think that's really important with youth development and should be a focus like in elementary PE and so forth. Absolutely. I agree. I, I think uh, one thing that's really cool about um, athletes at pretty much any level and super young kids is that they love to be timed, right? Like that's like oh, yeah. the feed the cats philosophy where it's like, if you time <laughs> a three-year-old, they're going to do whatever you want them to do really quick. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm always like, Hey, throw this way. I'm going to time you go. Yeah. And they're like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> instant feedback baby yeah yeah you can give them any number too you could say a hundred and they'd yeah. be like oh okay i'll do it faster and, you were 99 uh, seconds this time <laughs> they are funny that way now with uh do you see any of your of yourself and your kids yet in terms of their their likes their interest or their or moving patterns if we go that far um or is uh, your does your dad give you any insights like you know when you're that age you're doing this and i and i saw that well uh i know from my dad's stories that i was always following him around i was always coming to practice with him um he always tells the story when he was a basketball coach when i was two you know like my kid's age he would just kind of let me run around the gym and like one time i'm trying to climb up the pushed in bleachers and i like fall back and like hit my head real hard and like just parenting back then it was just kind of like let him go you know but I always wanted to be around I, I remember going to all of his track meets and things like that and I loved the the feel of the competition and track meets and also kind of the freedom that comes along with track and I think uh high school kids even like that feeling where football and basketball you're always having to be accounted for every second you're always right by your coach and in track you got to take a lot of responsibility on your own and um, I think it's a good developmental um, thing about track is you you got to trust the kids and you got to teach them how to act um, when the coach isn't around and um, be mature and get your work done as far as warm-ups and being ready for your race and things like that and I think that helped me a lot as an athlete and as a coach just being around um and you know i know when i was that age or i don't know about that age that young but i know at a really early age i was always you know ate up with sports whereas one of my kids really is as well the other one is more in the batman and the avengers and things like that even though he's probably the better athlete of the two he's less interested in athletics right now but you know i just have to remind myself that you know if he doesn't do any athletics that's okay but i know that when he's three years old you can't you don't know how he will 
um, take to athletics as he gets older. So gotta be patient. Brad and I talk about that a lot when uh, neither of us have kids yet, but when they do, we, we both have to say, you know what? I hope they like sports. I hope they play sports. We're going to give them all the opportunities to, but if they don't, we got to be okay with that and <laughs> like, and support whatever they get into as well. Um, I was fortunate. My dad uh, was really into sports. He's still really into sports. And my mom was super supportive of us too. So I always grew up in an atmosphere where sports were around, they're on TV. We're always playing them and being around that. And I think that just sets you up so well for, for the adversities you face later in life, whether college or work or career or relationships. Um, there's so many different things you can pull from sports as, as cliche as that is. And it's so interesting talking to people whose parents were a coach. So as a coach's kid, you hear so many different similarities and so many different uh, stories where it's just like, we're always at the track meet. We're always at basketball games. Um, but that really seemed to set up both your your athletic career and your, and your uh, professional career. So if you want to dive into those a little bit, and uh, yeah. we can kind of dissect that from there. Yeah, so... Growing up as a coach's kid, it can be a blessing and a curse. And so the blessing part is, like you said, you're always around it. And there's so many lessons to be learned being around sports that a lot of kids don't get that their entire childhood. They only get it for their playing career of their childhood, which might only be high school, might only be high school and middle school. Whereas I learned those lessons my entire life from my dad as a coach or from being around my dad coaching other kids and learning from the lessons he's teaching them, things like that. The other part of the blessing is also part of the curse, which is you start to develop strong opinions on how things should be done. You know, so like when I go um, play basketball for a Hall of Fame coach, you know, I and it's not done how I thought it should be done. You know, I had a hard time um, dealing with that coach. Or I went to college and I, I, I competed for one of the best D3 programs ever, North Central. There's a million coaches that come from North Central. And they all really um, give credit to the coaching there as to why they became coaches. And it couldn't have been less true for me. You know, I have like the opposite story of everybody else. And it's not like it was the coach's fault or anything. It's just a difference of philosophies. And I had really strong opinions that did not coincide with theirs. And um, so that's kind of a bummer, you know, as, as opposed to someone coming in pretty green and don't, doesn't know anything about the sport. Um, and, and, you know, you can just come right in and it's easier to buy in. You know, so it's harder to buy in when you already have opinions about, you know, how coaching should be done or how training should be done. And and um, so that was a bummer. Uh, but I also think I got more from my experiences that I did not like that shaped me as a coach than things that I did. So there's a lot of things that I still do that I loved as an athlete and there's, a, but there's, I think more things that I try to avoid that I didn't like as an athlete that I fall back on as a coach. It's funny in life. Sometimes you learn the most from the things that went the worst or you dislike the most. And recently I've been saying a lot, like you want to go through those things like as quick as possible. 
like try, 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 fail, fail, fail. So uh-huh. like you're not you're not 50 and still. I mean, you're still going to be failing, but it'll be at at different things. You'll be more advanced in the things that you like. But if you always try to avoid failing or avoid things that you dislike, you're never going to get through those to find the things that you actually do like or you're going to be successful at. And uh, I felt that a lot my my freshman year in college. I, I went to St. John's and I I was a math major and it didn't go well. I, I got like a B minus, I think, my my first semester. And then I had a D minus my second semester. So I ended up dropping the class and I had to switch to my major. And then also uh, connecting back to track, I was going to go out for the track team. I went through like fall captain's practices or whatnot. And I just, I ended up, I don't, I don't want to say hate, but I, I definitely resented it. And it was so much, it was so much work. And I had so many other priorities, like with school and living on my own and adjusting to college. And it, it, it didn't turn out. And I hated talking about it. And I really don't talk about it to a lot of different people. Yeah. And I just hated so much about, of feeling like a failure. But yeah. in that, I really learned a lot about myself and what I want to do and what was important to me. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of um, my teammates or coaches at North Central, when they saw that I became a coach, they're like, really? That guy? You know, because I was not a model citizen as an athlete in college because, and I think a lot of high school coaches see it a lot as well. Kids that rebel or they, they just not, they don't buy in. They don't, you know, they don't work hard. They don't seem to work hard or care, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, a lot of times it's just a, a lack of buy-in and that um, just makes it seem that way. You know, so for like in my case, I was a 110 hurdler. I didn't even run the 400 hurdles. And so I had a hard time buying into running 16 200s and going on 6 a.m. long distance runs. And, uh, and so I would dog it and I would make up injuries and I would find ways to skip practice. And like, that sounds so terrible, you know, for a coach that, you know, most coaches say the most important thing is accountability and acting the right way, doing the right thing. And I don't disagree, but you know, it's funny how sometimes the negatives shape who you are and, you know, I think it helps me relate to kids a little more and, you know, kind of look for the hidden meaning behind, like, why is this kid skipping my practice? Why does this kid not seem to be buying in and look inward as a coach? What can I be doing different? Things like that. I was just going to ask, does it help you relate to kids more when they don't want to show up or they're dogging it or they're having trouble with school and you've been through that? So I think the kid... Uh, buys into you more when you give a story like hey when i was at this point in my life i didn't go to practice i skipped and i learned from this and i want you to learn from it quicker than i did so <laughs> you can be successful whether you want to keep doing track or not um versus trying to always paint this perfect image that so many of us try to do all the time yeah and it's hard like you said it's embarrassing to talk about but when you realize how much it helped you grow as a coach you know it's less embarrassing, a little easier to talk about. And something that me and my dad talk about a lot is who becomes coaches? What players on your team, your teammates in high school, which ones become coaches? It's the the floor general point guard, the 
you know, in basketball, the, the try hard catcher in baseball, the, um, cerebral quarterback, uh, if you're lucky or the, um, guy who lived in the weight room and was a fat kid that made himself into a tough, hard nosed football player. Um, or in track, it's always the distance guys. Distance guys are always the tryhards. They have to, you know, and those, those are the guys that fall in love with the work ethic of sport and want to become a coach for that reason. And so I really take pride in not falling into any of those categories. So I can relate to those other kids better because, you know, there's not many of those type of kids on a team. You know, everyone would love to coach a team full of future coaches. You know, that would be great. But most kids just aren't. They're not going to be, especially in sprinting and, um, you know, coaching DBs and receivers and football. So I have gravitated to those sports and those events and um, positions where I am around more kids like myself so where they can hopefully relate to me and I can be an influence for them that they can relate to. I think that's an interesting point too, where there's, there, there could be something in like the DNA of a lot of people who become coaches who are like naturally the more try hard athletes. And then when they become coaches, that's what they try to instill in their athletes. And I think that's why, um, well, I mean, like you said, with like kind of sloughing off in practice and things like that, I think we'd, we'd be lying if everyone listening to this didn't admit that during a basketball drill, they'd always kind of, you know, have to retie their shoes or they'd, <laughs> you know, go a little bit less than a hundred percent or like have to get water at that moment or something, you know? Um, yeah. but no, I, I think that's part of why, um, like Tom and I are so drawn to, uh, the feed the cats mentality, or the minimal effective dose, because it's like you're playing into, the psychology of these athletes, like you're, you're playing into what they want, um, how their nervous system is going to respond best. And you're not forcing them to create a job out of something that they initially got into it as a young kid, because it was something they enjoyed. And I think that that's a big thing where there might be a disconnect between the DNA of most coaches wanting to make the kids work hard, like they did to be able to achieve success. Whereas some of the kids might be, just not wired that way, you know? Yeah. And I think there's, um, also a component for me where the science and logic behind it, as opposed to, um, we're doing this workout to make you tougher. It, there's, there's something that builds confidence and motivates that, you know, when you know you're working smarter than the other teams, rather, <clears throat> excuse me, rather than harder, then the other teams like, okay, they might be trying harder than us, but we're going to be healthier. We're going to be faster. And here's factual evidence as to why, as opposed to here's an arbitrary amount of reps of an arbitrary distance around the track for intervals for today, you know, and, and not to mention we're having fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, th th I think there is uh, I won't name any coaches or anything, but there are some different times throughout my young playing career where I remember like, if at the end of a drill or at the end of practice, if you weren't sweating enough or you weren't huffing and puffing enough, you were just going to go again. Because like, oh, yeah. if you're not completely gassed at the end of practice, it wasn't an effective practice, you know? Yep. And, you know, I think, you know, part of the other factor of being one of those atypical type of 
coaches that is not was not a try hard type guy is I think every coaching staff, especially in football and to a lesser extent in track too, needs that voice in that coaching staff, in that coach's office when that coach that does not understand why that kid skipped a set of bench today or uh, loafed it on a, a receiver loafed on, on a run play in practice today, you know, and to help put into perspective, like, don't hate this kid. He's not like a lazy piece of crap. He's just a kid. And, and, you know, everybody's different and is motivated different. And it doesn't mean they're any worse of a person, you know, and, and so it's a hard job, but I think it's a, an important job to have on a coach's staff. And it's important to have at least one coach on your staff with that perspective. When you first started coaching, did that change your perspective of any, whether we're talking about football or basketball or track, did that change your perspective on viewing athletes in any certain way? A little bit. Uh, I think um, somebody said to me, I think it was uh, my head track coach, Coach Licata, said Edwardsville. He, he said, you know, you better be careful who you coach with in your early coaching years because that is who you're going to end up coaching like the most. You know, that's who you're going to get the most from. And I think to a certain extent, it's really easy to just fall in line because you want to fit in and you want to, um, you know, do right by that coach that hired you or whatever. And so um, it was definitely hard to resist, you know, you know, blaming kids and, and, and forgetting my perspective. But I also got to dip my toe into coaching with my dad early on. Like when I was in college, I, I did some coaching with him as like a volunteer assistant and things like that. So, um, that was a, that was a good transition easing me into it and, and making sure I kind of kept my principles and strengthened my principles and, um, and, and learned in a setting that I was familiar with as well. I a hundred percent agree. Same thing goes with parenting you know, who you can't control who your parents are, but if you grow up in a good environment, you have good family, good friends, um, you go to good schools and you build yourself a good life, you're going to have more success. And especially in those early years, whether you're starting out in school or starting a new job or starting a new career, those early years are really impressionable on people. And if you are chasing, not necessarily the wrong things, but if you're just going after like the title or the money or the prestige or the external validation, you might really lose in the long term the what you actually want to achieve in a coaching career. So it's really nice for you that uh, we, we've talked to your dad a little bit and he seems like uh, an A plus guy. So <laughs> it helps that you had that kind of going um, and he was willing to embrace that. It's like, hey, my kids want to get into this and I'll embrace because that goes both ways too, where it's not always, you know, give and take like that between yeah. uh, between uh, father and son. You know, uh, he and he's not a perfect coach. You know, I always mess around with him. Like, this guy's going to like do podcasts for UMass about football, and he can't draw up a four four defense. You know, <laughs> um, but that's also part of what makes him great. You know, and um, with me, I don't know. I'm 
like my mom in a lot of ways. And one of those ways is I got a high BS meter where like if somebody tries to motivate me with a line they read in Sports Illustrated or something, like I remember my high school football coach comes in and he was never a big motivator or talker. And he comes in and says, thank God it's Friday. And we're like, what's this guy? And then we look down on his desk and there's a Sports Illustrated cover that said, thank God it's Friday, high school football <laughs> fact. And we're like, oh my God. And, you know, so like that type of stuff just makes me cringe. But for some reason, he was always able to motivate me and get past the BS meter, even though I have seen all his tricks and, and seen all of his, his motivational tactics and things like that. But the, the way that he motivates is by building confidence. And um, I think that's a big factor for me specifically, but I think a lot of people is that confidence factor. I need to believe in myself to um, be the best form of myself as a player or a coach. And he was really good at instilling that confidence in me as a player and as a coach. You know, I would have, I never would have thought that I would be, you know, a good coach, but he was just so sold on it. You're a great coach. You're going to be a great coach. And it really helped me, you know, grow and have a voice and be authentic and um, be confident and in, help instill confidence and pass that along to my athletes. Do you have any, like, one story or time that stands out early in your coaching career where, um, you know, he instilled that confidence in you or it was a time where you were like, God, I don't know if I'm cut out for this or like some specific moment where it was kind of like the turning point for you. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few, but off the top of my head, um, I had a pretty tumultuous first year coaching football at Edwardsville. This was, you know, my first teaching job um, out of college, right out of college. First year um, I'm teaching and coaching football and track. And so uh, we're supposed to have a pretty good team in football that fall. And um, we have a head coach that was kind of on the hot seat, and but we thought we we're going to turn it around with this good team this fall. Well, we get just slaughtered in week one, and they fire him on Monday. And Ooh, yeah, after so week one, week one of my first, dang, yeah, after the first game of my teaching and football coaching career, they fired my head coach, and so. They hired from within an interim coach and kind of shook up the whole staff. And it was a really scary, like I said, tumultuous season. And I definitely had to rely on, you know, calling my dad a lot of long conversations. And um, he also is really good at seeing the bright side and things and, and looking at things from a positive way. And our track season was the same, had a lot of, um, positives and negatives you know we had one of the best four by ones in the state and then our two leg quits because he was an immature sophomore it happens and uh he didn't handle shin splints very well so <laughs> that's why he quit that's how immature he was and then our backup two leg we were still good we set the school record with the backup we're like okay we're still set and this kid's a senior who ended up quitting because he heard the state track meet was on the same day as graduation and he was not going to miss graduation. So he just stopped coming to track. <laughs> and these are the types of things I'm dealing with in year one. And I'm like, how, how can you hold the pieces together? How have you done this for 30 years? You know? And, 
he just laughed and says, you know, these are the types of issues you go through every year. And the more experience you have, the more, the better you get at dealing with these things. And, you know, we all just kind of rely on each other and help each other out through these things. And we ended up setting the school record again with the third uh, string two leg. And it all ended up working out. It always does. The new head coach in football became one of my best friends. He was the, um, my witness that had to sign off on my destination wedding in uh, Dominican Republic uh, five years later. And this was a guy that I thought hated me at first. And, you know, I would call my dad like, I don't know if I can coach with this guy and ended up, you know, uh, it all worked out. So that confidence really helped. That graduation story really surprises me. I would take any excuse to miss like my own graduation or anybody else's graduation. (laughs) I, I just dislike going to them. They're so long. And, and honestly to me, they're boring. I know they're very important, so I never wanted to uh, diminish that. So if a state track meet was on the same day as high school graduation, I would, I would for sure, yeah. I would go as a as a backup or as you know someone to carry around the the pole vault poles or whatever. I know I'd do anything to to get out of graduation. So that story kind of surprises me. That it's I mean, like, something uh, else. Maybe I they had like a. Watched, I don't know if you watched that ESPN Thirty for Thirty, The Last Dance, first couple episodes on Sunday oh, night. Oh yes, sir. But... Yes, sir. <laughs> But the best quote of, of all of it was Jerry Reinsdorf being like, yeah, he was mad that he didn't get invited to the wedding. If somebody didn't invite me to a wedding, I'd thank him. It <laughs> was kind of the same thing as graduation to me. <laughs> weddings can be like, especially if you had, my brother had like eight or nine weddings last year. And I felt so bad for him. I'm yeah. like three at most for me. Um, <laughs> and and if I, I better know. Like both people get married and most people in the audience. And if I don't, it's just yeah. really hard for me to, to get that excited for them. So yep. <laughs> that's funny you brought that up because I think we all feel the same about that. Weddings yep. and graduations can be, they can be a little much sometimes. Oh, yeah. Let's jump in a little more kind of nervous system. Uh, central nervous system. I don't think it gets talked enough, especially in this day and age where um, athletes, they're they're on all the time, whether it's social media, hang out with friends, school, uh, extracurriculars, and then they come to practice and it's just like drive, 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 do more, do more, do more, be better, be better, yeah. you know, wait, stay up all night, get up early. How do you, how do you convey to your athletes that what you're doing is best for their overall health and for their performance as well? Well, um, first with the central nervous system, um, we, instituted a big focus on RPR reflexes performance reset, which is, you know, very highly central nervous system based for those that don't know about it. Um, my dad and Chris Corfist are really kind of, um, the, the leaders of trying to spread RPR among all levels of athletics. And, um, it's just recently became, um, to me, uh, the ability to install it for a whole team, you know, a whole track team with like 40 sprinters that we're working with. How can we get them to perform RPR? How can we perform RPR on them? We can't go one by one, things like that. And, um, and so we did the research and we attended all the seminars and things like that and learned how to have them or teach them how to do it themselves. And so, we started out every day with um, 
a five minutes of belly breathing. And if somebody walked into our practice, they'd be like, what is going on? Why do you have these kids looking like they're laying down sleeping for five minutes? And, you know, we do some other stuff to try to turn on the kinetic chain and make sure muscles are activated and ready to fire and things like that. But what I noticed is that five minute belly breathing is such a meditative thing to clear the clutter of the mind. Like you said, so much stuff that these kids have had to do. Our school starts at 720. These kids are getting up at 6 a.m. They're going to bed at 1 a.m. Midnight if we're lucky. They're eating like crap or not eating. And their girlfriends break up with them. Um, their teacher hates them. You know, whatever. Every high school kid has multiple things going on. Their emotions are being pulled a million different directions. Hormones are flying. And I think it's, I mean, it's almost unbelievable that anybody can perform after school after all that stuff is going on and you know our our anecdotal story and there's so many of these from so many different programs but when we instituted this this january um we'd already had like four or five speed sessions and we said hey we're going to change up our warm-up we're going to do more of a neural wake up than a uh, muscle warm up where you know we're not trying to get blood pumping as much as we are trying to um, wake up, and by wake up I mean the central nervous system, and clear the clear the mechanism. Uh, one of my favorite movie quotes um, for the love of the game, Kevin Costner, but uh, <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. And our anecdotal story is we had like thirty something athletes, and on day one we tested the forty yard dash. 100% of the kids PR'd by an average of 0.12 seconds. And that's FAT. We use an that's FAT wild. timing system. And that was the day one. And this is something that I've been kind of uh, encouraging our head coach. Like, we, I think this is going to be a game changer if we can figure this out. And he was like, eh, maybe. You know, sounds good, but we'll see. And he, after that day, he was like, we're doing this every day. <laughs> and so then day two, we test the 10 meter fly and we have 95% PRs. I think we had like two people or one person, you know, tie or barely miss their PR. And we're like, oh my God. And then we went on to have the most productive, the highest growth we've ever had of any winter. And we, we do a lot of speed metric um, timing and training and marking as far as broad jump, vertical jump, 40-yard dash, 10-meter fly, um, pro agility to make football players happy, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, single-legged box jump, five-box jump, you know, things like that. We measure anything we can to make it fun for the kids and meaningful and things like that. And the growth from this neural wake-up as opposed to a dynamic warm-up, it's insane. So dive in a little bit more to uh... – so the belly breathing, what else kind of does it consist of? You don't have to fully give away the formula, yeah. <laughs> but just give us a little insight. Yeah, so we um, – basically the belly breathing has to be – all of this has to be 100% buy-in, 100% focus. And we reiterate to the kids that, like, this is odd. I'm going to tell you right now, this is unlike anything you've ever done before, and there is no problem if you are uncomfortable with it. If you would rather do a dynamic warm up, 
feel free. There will be no hard feelings. Um, go ahead. And what ended up happening was, I don't know if kids were just trying to please us or something, but everyone stayed. No one w- chose the dynamic warm-up option. Everyone wanted to do the uh, RPR. And so um, we had good buy-in, and that's the number one most important thing. Like, I've I've heard stories of football teams that tried it and kids were kind of messing around and talking and laughing during the belly breathing. And that's just totally pointless of doing it at that point. So like coaches also have to be all on your side. If you have six football coaches, they all need to be walking around, making sure everyone's focused. They can't be joking around talking during it. So it is coaches and athletes, 100% buy-in 100% effort. It's not like it takes a lot of effort to do, belly breathing and be quiet for five minutes, but it is just needs to be a focus. And so we start with that. And like I said, it's kind of like a meditative, um, meditative, clear the mechanism type of deal. And, um, followed by a few different pressure points we try to hit with, um, kind of like massaging different parts of the body. Um, but I would say it's like a deep tissue massage where, it hurts. <laughs> when, like when you are uh, resetting the psoas, which is like the first thing you do, um, it's kind of like you got to dig in underneath and past your abdominal muscles. And it feels like you're stabbing yourself with a knife at times. Like it hurts. Um, and what it does when all this is said and done, we go through, I think, five or six different points that we activate um for 30 seconds a piece things like that um and it's just kind of like level one level two stuff just like the core hip uh hip flexors hamstrings quads things like that that we really focus on glutes and afterward what kids notice is they feel taller they feel lighter they feel more focused they um they feel loose they are confused because they're sweating and they don't know why because they haven't done anything and it feels like we just did a dynamic warm-up to the best of our abilities so it has the same effects as a dynamic warm-up but also has the positive effects of a neural wake-up as well and that's something that we didn't expect we didn't even as coaches expect that and and so after two three sessions of this Kids already know what to do. We're walking around, making sure they're doing it right. Um, You know, some kids are maybe hitting an inch here or there off or maybe not digging in hard enough, um, things like that. So you're kind of going around correcting for a while. But after a while, it kind of takes care of itself. And these kids are like, you know, you see them doing their activation techniques, you know, uh, before they're 40, they're, before they step up to the line. And it's it's really cool to see them. That's how you know they're buying in and how, how you know they believe it works and, and you're seeing the results. And so um, there's, I think, a whole lot of podcasts and, and seminars and webinars and things like that to get delve deeper into RPR. Mm-hmm. But that's just kind of our start story of this winter of how we got started with it. Yeah, I have to say, uh, so Tom and I have been getting more into RPR and, and learning more about it. And I think you bought the course, right, Tom? I, I did. I went through the online course and it's it's fascinating 
how simple it is, but it's super effective. If you do it right, you pay attention. Like you said, like during the belly breathing, like focus on what you're doing. Don't screw around because if you screw around while doing it, you're not going to get the facts and then you're not going to get the buy-in. So if you're going to do it, don't do it. (laughs) Don't, don't, don't do anything, you know, half-assed. And and I have to say anecdotally, uh, because I don't remember if this was a few months ago or at what point, but um, we were in a dome. Tom and I were in a dome, and we were timing our sprints uh, using the Dasher system. And um, we ran. So we did like a typical dynamic warm-up, ran the first one, timed it. uh, And then we did a little bit of just like self-RPR, just trying it, just seeing like, hey, what does this feel like? What does it do? Whatever. And anecdotally, that second time, I think we were both like, was it two miles per hour or it was like, it was like one and a half to two miles hour faster. Yeah. On that second run. Um, and you definitely, I mean, as far as from like, uh, personal perspective, you feel lighter, you feel like you don't know why, but you just feel like you can move more freely and easier. And like yeah. your joints and muscles are all like in concert together. Yeah, for sure. And it's, I love the comparison of a basketball player being in the zone. You know, when Clay Thompson goes off for 34 points in the third quarter, he's in the parasympathetic state, which is the whole goal of RPR. Speaking of Clay, we need basketball back here pretty soon. I know the playoffs are supposed to be going on right now. And the NBA finals are probably my favorite sporting event throughout the year. And it's just killing me. You know, we had the MJ documentary, which was nice, and we have all these replays, but gosh, we need support. And I'm sure as you as a coach, you're feeling it <laughs> 10 times as much as we are, not having your athletes around, not being able to go to practice. And yes, meet. it's been brutal. I watched a 2005 uh, Monday Night Football game last night from front to back. <laughs> just <laughs> missed it that much. Some of these games that are on, I completely forget who wins. So it's, it's actually yeah. a little bit like watching a real game. It's like, <laughs> I actually don't know who wins this game. There's even right. one from two from two years ago. It was the Rams versus the Chiefs. It was a high-scoring Monday night game. I, oh, and yeah. I forgot who won. I was like, well, yeah. I, I think the Chiefs won, but maybe not. So, uh, But it, it doesn't replicate a live sporting event or going to sporting events or anything of that nature. It, it's close, but it's definitely not the same at all. Right. So, so sort of staying on the topic too of, of the CNS, um, I wanted to ask you what, so, so we get this question a lot as far as players who play like basketball or volleyball or sports where you're not running 40 yards straight, like why, what is the benefit of still running a 40, right? Um, yep. And I think the argument obviously is for, you know, you're taxing the central nervous system, you're getting it like the most output. Um, most explosive output, but what do you typically say to people or how do you educate them on that? Uh, the most simple way I say it is speed has universal effects. So when, when I'm working on max velocity, let's say uh, 10 meter fly or 40 yard dash, any, any type of, you know, five seconds or less maximum output, um, ideally spiked up, things like that. If I'm, if I'm working on those top speed things, so I'm not talking about striders that distance coaches call speed work or um, um, cleans that football coaches consider speed work or whatever, you know, I'm talking about running maximally for anywhere from one to five seconds. Um, you're you're going to start to see strength numbers go up. You're going to start to see change of direction numbers go up. 
you're going to start to see acceleration numbers go up. And so, you know, we have really increased our focus on max velocity as opposed to acceleration. Before, we used to think that acceleration should be our focus because there's more coaching points to it, um, you know, body positioning and cues and things like that. But what we noticed is we made more head cases out of kids by overcoaching that one little part. And then when we just went out and had fun and sprinted as fast as we can, next thing you know, like we got a football player, 6'2", 205, going to be borderline size and speed wise for division one as a tight end um and football coach was like okay you know like we trust your track program um you know just i just don't want him to lose any weight and you know uh i know in the weight room we would be focusing on gaining weight so i'm kind of bummed that he's not going to be doing that and whatever so we get him he runs a four nine eight forty and uh, a month later with us, he goes 467, and he has Ooh. gained five pounds without lifting heavy weights. Wow. And, <laughs> Those are some numbers right there. Yeah, and, and he, he's just an example of not – it's not because we're, like, great coaches or anything. It's more of uh, he had a lot of untapped speed potential that he had never tried to tap into before. And so, you know, he goes to a rivals camp and runs a 498, then he would have been written off right away. But he goes 467 at 6222210 as a junior in high school. You know, you're going to start to turn some heads, you know, feel terrible that he never got the chance to do that this year with everything going on in the spring. Uh, but uh, he was, that's a, just a great anecdotal um, story about the universal effects of speed training is that his, bench press max went up he gained five pounds and we don't lift heavily we do lifts um but we're doing more like fast bar type lifts um about twice a week so way less than you know off-season football weights does and it's funny that his weight gain and weight room numbers went up just as much if not more with us yeah i think that's something where because um, the argument is always made, like, does acceleration matter more? Does change of direction, agility, what is it? And the max velocity is going to carry over to all those things, like you said, because, you know, neurons that fire together are going to wire together. If you, if you train your uh, mind-muscle connection to be just incredibly rapid. And um, the other nice thing about, about going max speed is there's no weight where it's like, okay, am I at my max? Could I be using like a lighter weight and going faster? Could I use a little bit heavier weight and do the same? Like, it's just like you're going as fast as you possibly can with your body. So you yeah. know that you're, you know, you're maxing out every time, basically. Exactly. And another uh, way I like to put it is you give us two linebackers. Let's make their height and weight the same, but your guy benches 300 pounds. My guy benches 200 pounds. My guy runs a four six. Your guy runs a four nine my guy's going to hit harder than you and yep. my guy is going to get to a ball carrier obviously faster than your guy so and i think nobody would disagree with that with that line of thinking but too many um and it's not just football coaches it's track coaches too act like speed is their number one or is a big priority but they don't 
train like it. But, and I think it's a, it's a fear of speed. There's a lot of unknowns out there uh, with a lot of coaches about speed. And I think that's a big problem. I'm really interested to see with the self-quarantine going on, the athletes that take the time to sprint on their own, to do plyometrics, to work on their skill work, and to really strip down training to like the essentials and see how well they do once we get back into playing sports versus the ones that don't. Because everywhere you go on Twitter, it's like, you still need a sprint. You still need to do your plyos. You still need to like hone these body weight exercises. And that really gets down to what's important in training. All that other stuff can be, can be seen as uh, too important sometimes. But I'm really interested to see the kids that take that to heart. Because right now, it is super easy to sit around all day, watch TV, or to like go outside and go like on a, like a slow jog or just shoot it for a little bit. But the kids who take time to go to the park and get their sprints in, I'm really interested to see how much they separate themselves from the pack. I think it will really, really take a special athlete to get a lot out of that over quarantine. I'm pretty worried about it, really. I mean, because um, one of the biggest factors, I think, in Feed the Cats is creating meaning to um, develop higher output. So if I tell you to um, go over there and jump as high as you can, you're going to jump, go jump, and you're not going to jump as high as you would if I said step on this Vertimax board and we're going to test your vertical jump. And then we're going to test your friend and see who's better. And then we're going to record it and then we're going to publish it online and we're going to tweet who's the best one, you know. So without that meaning that is so important and motivational for kids, who is mature enough to get that maximal output without those external factors? My sister-in-law's brother, he's 14 years old and he lives in rural Iowa. Um, not super rural, but they, uh, they, they didn't cancel school, but it's like optional for the rest of the year because so many kids don't have reliable internet at home. And he just tells his parents, like, well, what's the point of doing this? Like, I'm not even getting great. Like, I want to go to school. Like, I want to learn. I want to. Right. But if I'm not even getting great. And the same thing applies to training where yeah. a lot of people miss a boat. If you're not measuring what what matters and what you want to progress, you're not going to get you're not going to put out your best effort and you're not going to progress the way you would if you measured whether it's jumping, sprinting, lifting. Lifting is pretty easy because, you know, the way you'd have, you never lift a bar without knowing how much weight's on it. But with sprinting and jumping, sometimes we get away from that. And it's like, let's think back a little bit. Would you go to school and not get grades? Probably not. You wouldn't probably try as hard and you wouldn't progress the way you want to. Same thing with your speed and plyo work. Measure what matters and you're going to get a lot of progress out of that. You know, I saw, um, you know, some football coaches posting, here's some strength exercises you need to do while on quarantine that you can do at your house and it's just like three by five with this exercise three by ten with this exercise and it's just kind of giving strict orders about what exactly you need to do and a big part of feed the cats in our program is uh what we call build your own house and a big part of that is we're trying to educate the kids to be just as knowledgeable about this subject as us 
because we try to simplify, simplify, simplify so much that anybody can pick this up, whether it's somebody that's never coached track before coaching for the first time or a kid that wants to know how to best train themselves when the coach isn't around. And hopefully we've taught kids how to build their own house enough that they know the level they need to get to for output and the type of things they need to do and the general structure that it would take to not have to rely on, okay, three by five of this set, three by 10 of this exercise and things like that. And they can, you know, find the meaning and, and the um, effort they need to by building their own house. I, I love that you said that because that's something that Tom and I really advocate for as well in the space of rehab and training is giving autonomy to the person. So, it, so it's all based on the education and the meaning behind it versus just like, here's the program, go do it. Um, it goes back to that saying of, you know, catch, catch a fish for somebody to eat for a meal teach them how to fish, they eat for a lifetime or whatever it is. I'm sure I butchered it, but it's, it's just the idea of giving people the tools that they need to be successful long-term because they can't keep coming back and whether it's physical therapy or coaching or training, they can't just keep referencing back to you. They need to understand it for themselves so they can implement it. And then that's where innovation and creativity becomes in because everybody thinks about things a little bit differently. So if they understand the rationale for it, they're able to then get into their own innovation and creativity. And then you learn from them where they're like, Oh, I tried this. And you know, it just yeah. builds so much from there versus like oh, a yeah. dictatorship. hundred percent. Another thing I think as a coach, I really appreciate that you and your dad and other people involved at TFC do is it's your responsibility to make it simple for the athlete. Because if you make it as simple as possible, whether it's a complex topic or a training system or the idea into the practice, it could be a 10 page document of everything you want to get done in that practice. But if you just tell these kids, we want to go fast today and then they get it like, okay, we're going fast so I can run faster. So in the game, when I'm tired, I'm still faster than the other kid. And that's why I really appreciate it because if you get so complicated, yeah, sure. It looks like, you know, a lot and you're really smart and you took a bunch right. of classes and stuff or, you know, a lot of people, but getting it to, to boil it down to, as simple as possible, especially for like a 16 year old, like they don't care all the things that go into it. They just want to know, like, am I going to win this race? Like, is our team going to be good? Like, are we going to look good in school? Like no one wants to be on a bad team in school and right. to know that coach has their back and they're doing all the effort for them. That's what we really appreciate um, with this community you guys have built. Yeah. And you know, and, and it's uh, the older the kid gets, I can, understand getting a little more complex i guess but i think uh too many people use that as a reason to get too complex and and overcoach things um you know for example i coached the state record holder in the 110 hurdles and was his hurdle form perfect no but i think he did the essentials really 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 well at obviously a very high level and if i overcoached him saying you did this wrong you did this wrong and this wrong then you need to fix it then i think you're going to end up having seeing negative returns um my dad told the story of his fast sprinter who you know it's funny i coached the 110 state record holder 
my brother coached the four by one state record holder and he coached my dad coached the 100 state record holder and it make no mistake these kids were elite as it gets before we got to them but you know funny coincidence that we all had the chance to coach those studs but um when marcellus my dad's 100 meter runner went to purdue and he ran this spring when he should have been a high school senior um as soon as he got there you know i'm sure everyone was licking their chops to get their hands on him and put their coaching stamp on him and the first thing they did was switch his feet in the blocks and he's like this feels terrible they're like no this is how we're going to do it and i just think it's coaches over coaching to put their stamp on things and he didn't like it. It didn't feel right. And luckily they, they listened to him and they let him switch back. But that's the type of stuff that it's coaches trying to be overly complex to make themselves feel and look better and smarter than they, you know, need to like, it's just, it can be such a pissing contest as a coach and it's just not necessary, you know, hundred percent. Two things that I really appreciate of your, and we'll post all of your, the blogs that you've written. We'll post those in the show notes. You have a quote here. If you aren't good in track, you probably aren't as good as you think you are in football. So my advice would be to run track and get more athletic. And I think a lot of kids need to read that because a lot of kids think they're really good at football, but then when you put them on the track and they're not as fast as they say they are, it, uh, it really shows some vulnerabilities, but also some room for improvement where it's like, this is a proven way to get better at the thing that you like. Sure, you might not, you know, live and breathe track, but you do live and breathe football and track can help you get better at football. So in the spring, come out for track. I'll help you reach your goals. Um, and then you and I don't know if the picture was right next to the quote too, but you have a picture of about 20 of your kids running down the track. They all have medals on their around their neck. One kid's holding this big trophy. Um, I, I believe that's one of your your state championships. Our first one, yeah. Our victory lap. In and the that, is, that is the way uh, high school sports should be, whether it's football, track, volleyball, soccer, that it comes down to the kids enjoying it, the kids feeling rewarded, and, and they're, no, they're not happy the season's over. They're happy that they got to compete at the highest level. And uh, that's what Feed, Cat, Feed the Cats is all about. That's what your, your program, your system you've implemented is all about, is giving these kids these awesome opportunities. And I'm sure when you see that, when those kids are on down the track, you feel pretty good about yourself. And, and you hope that your kids at some point have coaches like this, whether they, they run for you or, or for your dad or whoever that, uh, they get these experiences as well. Yeah. You know, I, I can't promise kids that that are always going to love every 400 they ever run, but I can promise them that their enjoyment and their experience in our track program is the number one priority for us. So to see kids have success at the highest level, winning a couple state championships, um, five st- or five or six state trophies and, um, have fun doing it where they're not dreading going to practice every day and they know they're getting better for their other sports as well. Um, is just the most rewarding thing in the world to me, you know, uh, to have success and enjoy success. You don't have to hate the process. And, and that's, you know, a big thing we try to get across to kids and, and coaches that are looking into coaching in this philosophy. 
you can always get a little bit better, whether you're an athlete or a coach, whoever involved, you always get a little bit better. But yes, let's try and enjoy the process as much as we can. Um, can you give our listeners a little bit about where to find you, your Twitter handle? And I know you just came out with a, a DVD series or DVD yeah. this year on, on hurdling. Do you want to touch on those a little bit and then I'll wrap up? Yeah. So um, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, it's, I believe, A underscore holler underscore EHS on Twitter. And um, I'm also, I also have a few YouTube videos and I'm going to probably start putting out some more content about hurdles and speed training on YouTube as well. So it's just my name, Alec Holler. Um, and then I have a link to my um, speed training or my hurdle training DVD, Feed the Cats, a complete hurdle training system. Got the DVD right here with me. Um, it is a pinned tweet up at the top of my Twitter. Um, and then you can also just go to uh, Championship Productions to scroll, scroll through and find that DVD as well. Wonderful. We'll post that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. We appreciate it. And uh, have fun running around with your kids at home. Make sure they have good squat technique. Make sure they're, they're sprinting fast. And uh, but make sure they're having fun. That's, that's the most important part. And I know you already know that. But thanks for being on again, Alec. We appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. This was my first podcast. And uh, it was a lot of fun talking to you guys. So thanks a lot.